All right. So hi, everybody. Uh, we're here with Goshi Manabe. Uh, Goshi, is a, uh, Goshi is a friend of mine, and he is uh, living in California, has been for a better part of his life now, uh, moving back and forth between Tokyo, uh, Japan, and the US. is kind of at the heart of who Goshi is. Uh, he's been a connector in the industry for, um, for quite a while now. Uh, helping uh, digital companies from Japan understand uh, the rest of the world, and uh, also uh, currently helping um, the relationship between Record Choku and Techstars um, that Bob Moss that we have on the first episode is running. So, okay, Goshi, how are you? All right, how you doing, David? Uh, cool, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm fine too. Um, I'm actually in New York, so I changed the settings from the palm trees in the previous episode. Um, <laughs> so. Um, before we kind of get into it, uh, the relationship between Japan and the U.S. and and you know understanding the differences between the market, I'm I'm hoping that everybody can understand really who you are and where you come from. So do you sure. mind kind of summarizing very quickly, um, like the first 20 years of your life in a, in a couple of minutes? Sure. Um, so I was born in Tokyo and basically raised like a regular Japanese kid until first grade, and then around second grade, my mother was educated in LA for college decided that you know the world's going to be more global so you know you should learn English and just you know uh, send me off actually to my uh, mother's college buddy's uh, house in LA uh, when I was second grade going on second grade and I was there for a few months and after that you know um, I had an aunt who lived in San Francisco so I moved to San Francisco did one year of school there didn't understand English at all, but then after one year, I was like a sponge, so I knew English. And when I came back to Japan, actually, I couldn't speak Japanese for about six months. But then I enrolled in a, uh, in an international school, and it was great because it had about a hundred nationalities of different kids, and grew up all through the 80s basically until I graduated um, high school in Tokyo. So yeah, so you did even when you were even when you were when you were back in in Japan, um, yes, you were kind of raised in an international school, uh, which is very specific. The uh, people might know it, but the the the, the general level of English uh, for uh, Japanese people, especially, uh, of course, you're very young, but of course, like your generation, uh, even more than today, um, is quite low. And and I think the consequence of that is a general lack of understanding of maybe mm -hmm. the outside market, or I would even push it further, maybe a lack of interest because the Japanese industry has been so thriving. Um, right. Just like we as non-Japanese usually don't really understand the Japanese market, um, the, the, the Japanese market is not really uh, so open. Um, so yeah, that, that's cool. So at this point, you're kind of finishing high school. You're a bilingual kid in, in Tokyo. What's next for you? So... You know, the summer I graduated, you know, in Japan back then, it was called the bubble days and people were going out a lot more. And, you know, uh, we grew up going to clubs, discos, and I was very fascinated by that. And I was really into music. So I got my first like kind of assistant job to a you know party promoter. Her name was Connie. E. She was a Singaporean woman. And um, she was holding like the coolest parties in Tokyo back then, um, bringing all these international DJs. And so one of the first summer jobs I got to do um, was like bring over this band called UR, 
underground resistance um, to Tokyo for the first time. It was kind of funny, you know, we were under a budget, so they ended up staying over my mother's place, you know, during the tour and stuff. And that's how I kind of started getting my foot in the door in the music industry. Yeah. Um, and so at this point, you're like in your early 20s or something, going to college, doing the, the doing parties. Um, like um, what, what happened? You moved back in the U.S.? Um, well, I went to, sorry, I went to college in uh, a school in Brooklyn called Pratt Institute. It was an art school, you know, and um, I was first trying to be a graphic designer. Everybody wanted to be a graphic designer back then. But just to give you, you know, an idea back then, like a computer uh, graphics was like a an elective. Right. It wasn't mandatory. And we were doing for that, like a program called Quark, which doesn't even exist anymore. Right. So by the time I graduated college, it was like those people who went to school, like learn Photoshop in six months, they were getting the job. So my whole college education was like, you know, not that much worth it, you know, because of the times. But um, yeah, Brooklyn was not like Brooklyn, you know, back then. And uh, it was really rough. You know, it was a time when like Biggie Smalls is like just rapping at the, you know, corners of Brooklyn. That was the era. But um, yeah, so... When I was in New York, though, I really liked music that I was just doing internships all the time. You know, I first did a stint at MTV International. Then I was also at uh, a recording studio called Chung King, being a peon like assistant. And then I moved Chung on. Chung King to is the is the studio in Chinatown that all the Def Jam um, records were. Yeah, now it's posh and it's in Soho, but uh, the original one. The real, you know, uh, rough one, I would say, in Chinatown, where all the Def Jam original uh, recordings were recorded. And at the time when I was there, it was like uh, Puffy was just starting to launch Bad Boy and, and Mary J. Blige just finished her recording, first recordings there. Like Nas, I was in the studio when Nas was first dropping as a guest, you know, um, MC. That's cool. That was the kind of the times. Yeah. Then I got an uh, internship for a, quite a while, for over a year at Arista, back when Arista was independent, you know, Clive Davis's label on 57th Street. So I was working there for over a year. And then, you know, um, I think my last year in college, um, my grandmother passed away and she left me an inheritance about, I would say, around $6,000. So I figured, you know, I should make the most of this and take a chance and i decided to approach back then there was a summer conference called new music seminar so i went to the head of new music seminar and say hey could i could i hold like after hours parties you know during that time and he's like sure it was really cool and i rented this venue that i got introduced to and i had this uh, after hours party for three nights straight but lost money as a result because i didn't know what i was doing but the interesting thing about that is that it turns out the venue I rented from, you know, and the owner of that space turned out to be this gentleman called David Mancuso. And it was a uh, the longest running party in New York. And it's actually going to be the 50th anniversary next year called The Loft, you know. And um, so through that, I got to meet him. And then I ended up working the door and helping manage his parties for a while, too, uh, for a couple of years. And also from that new music seminar experience, I got my first real job, 
because the founder of New Music Seminar introduced me to his friend who was looking for some bilingual, you know, assistant at the time. And this guy used to run a club in New York called Mars, who was getting back into like uh, Japanese music coordination business, which means like the Japanese music industry, they want to record, uh, shoot videos in the States. So they need people to coordinate that or licensing music. I really learned about music licensing at that time. So that took me all the way up to the end of the um, 1990s. So I was there in New York for about 10 years. So that, that's, so that, kind of, that's kind of your first consulting gig already, doing the bridge between Japan and, and the U.S. Way yeah, before, it, so, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, like I, I know you, you then opened Trigger, um, moved back to, the, to Japan and actually did consulting in Japan or, uh, for, 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 for film and, and, um, and music as well. But I mean, that, that kind of first experience is already a, a Japanese-U.S. exchange and facilitate, uh, facilitating uh, uh, between the two markets. Yeah, and that was great weight for me as a young kid. And I, you know, <clears throat> uh, I got to meet a lot of the Japanese music industry, you know, back then, you know, imagine in the 90s. So now they're all executives today. You know, so it all connects, you know. And so at, the, at this point, you decide to go back to Japan and this is where you open Trigger. Uh, can yes, you kind because, of explain what is what is Trigger? Because yeah, sure. it's, it's still it's still your company today. That's still the name of, of your business today. Yes. So it came um, as a natural prog progress because um, the company I was at, it wasn't able to sponsor my green card. So I was like. I'm Japanese. I should go back to Japan so I could do anything I want. And then the reality hit was like with my background, you know, being in the music business and having these odd jobs, like I tried to, you know, apply for corporate jobs and whatever, but I couldn't get any. So I was like, well, at least I'm in my own country so I could start a company. So I partnered with a good buddy of mine, Yumi Tanabe. And at the time she was, you know, launching Nickelodeon in Japan. She was a producer director. And it was, we launched in 2000. So that was the whole, you know, internet bubble days. And at the same time, Napster was coming. So like, I was like, at the same time, thinking like, you know, maybe I should diversify, not just be in music. And so again, she was in more TV kind of film. So anything across music, TV, film, and, you know, digital, because everything was getting, you know, influenced and touched by digital. So, yeah, we did everything there with anything that came along, you know. So just to give you an idea, we uh, on Nickelodeon, she produced a show and I was actually one of a featured character on Nickelodeon. And it was funny because I was a DJ character called Nick J. Gigi with okay. orange hair. And then a few years later, Yo Gabba Gabba comes out with the same color and a DJ out of Nickelodeon U.S. And we're like, hmm. But um. From that to working with like anywhere from NFL to, you know, PGA uh, to <clears throat> a lot of the uh, World Cup stuff because Japan and Korea had the World Cup. You know, I was booking shows uh, around for that. The, for, the, for the Americans, you have to say it's the soccer World Cup. The soccer World Cup, yeah. <laughs> so doing that and um, besides that... Uh, yeah, and uh, another one through that MTV connection was like, uh, I don't know if you know this movie called Jackass. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, so Jackass, the one that they go to Japan. So we were, you know, hired to get all the licensing uh, or permits, I should say, to film what they filmed. Yeah, and they were so doing, they were that doing was stupid, a, stupid stuff. So I guess you need a lot of authorization for that, yeah. 
Yeah, that's when I uh, learn how to delegate and I have someone <laughs> else do the, you know, actual job yeah. <laughs> with those guys, crazy guys. But um, yeah, and besides that, I was doing all the, you know, music related stuff, whether it was licensing music, uh, helping production internationally. Um, yeah, and again, the whole digital things were happening. So, for example, uh, Avril Lavigne, um, she had her first like online digital um, Japanese fan club. We did that with Excite, which was a portal in Japan, and also a live streaming of her concert, you know? So, yeah, was trying to just get my hands on anything that was entertainment related. Yeah. And so um, we actually know each other through uh, Record Choku, uh, the yeah. company that you're consulting with uh, today. We met at Techstars last year um, and uh, have been in touch since. So um, people in the U.S. and outside of Japan sometimes don't know uh, what Record Choku or what, like what, what company, um, what they do in the world of streaming. Uh, sure. Could you explain uh, what Record Choku is and sure. maybe how you're, how you're working with them on a day-to-day basis? So um, Record Choku and Bob from um, Techstars would put it as is, uh, a connective tissue of the record industry in Japan. And why that is, is because the way they formed was back in when there were ringtones, you know, um, on feature phones, you know, only the publishers were making money as you can imagine because they're all covers. So the Japanese record industry, all the majors, the domestic and all the global majors got together and they're like, let's invent master ringtones. So they got together and formed Record Choku to create this master ringtone business, which in a matter of a few years was a you know a couple hundred million dollar business just in Japan. I had never thought about the fact that early, early ringtones where you, the phone would like replay with simple sounds um, the, the, the copyright, the song. Right. It was a publishing right, but they were recreating yeah. the master. And when it right. became polyphonic ringtones where it was an actual extract of the song, this is when the master side came in. Um, yep. That's uh, yeah. Never, never, never looked at this this way. Um, cool. And so um, all the all of the majors. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. All the majors kind of came together uh, to form yeah. Record Choku and, and to take that uh, that market. Yeah. And so they created this, you know, couple hundred million dollar business in a few years, and you know the stakeholders were all the record labels. And then from there on, because they launched in 2001, you know, it just naturally progressed into, you know, smartphones came, also iTunes came, so downloads. Then obviously they were the first players in um, streaming in Japan, you know, um, because back then uh, and still today, they power the top two mobile carriers in Japan's like download stores. And for the number one carrier, which is Docomo, they also power their streaming services. And their streaming service was the first one, D-Hits, was the one that launched in Japan. And also Docomo then became the, uh, another stakeholder for Record Choker. The interesting thing about Docomo though, uh, so one of their subsidiaries is Tower Records. So it'll be surprising in 2019 to hear that Tower Records still exists. And all I could say is that they're alive and well in Japan. They got, I'd say, over 80 stores across Japan, and they're the they're the largest, you know, physical uh, music retailer in Japan still. And on, and on, so the, you're, you're, you were saying Docomo, the the, tel, the telco carrier. So what in America would be Verizon or T-Mobile? They yes. own they own Tower Records. They own Tower Records. Yeah. That's that's highly surprising as well. Yeah. 
And, and then so, different. So with Docomo's, they got about fifty percent market share of Japan. So they really have clout. Yeah. You mean market share for for the for the telco as a telco? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so Rekochoku, um, kind of like uh, Deezer was a few years ago in France, uh, is a huge player locally. Um, and, and these are actually started to launch in multiple markets now, but Rekochuku is a Japan only music, uh, digital music company. And so right. you've been, you've been working with them, uh, trying to branch out and also trying to learn a lot from the non Japanese market. Could you explain a little bit, uh, what sure. you do as a consultant? So my role, um, the title is international rep and advisor. So, but in actuality, what it is, is I'm basically Record Choco's eyes and ears, because like you said, they don't conduct any business outside of Japan. At the same time, as you can imagine, all the top global players, you know, uh, whether it be Apple, Amazon, you know, um, Google, they're all in Japan already, right? And there's other domestic services that they have to compete with. So they want to be ahead of the curve. They're always looking for new ways to, you know, expand their business by, you know, creating new partnerships or finding new business models and business opportunities. So that's where I'm the conduit. And then, you know, I try to seek those out for them. And that's how we came about to meet with Techstars Music. And ever since Techstars Music launched, you know, we were fortunate that we were first a Japan specialist mentor. And we, you know, thought it was so valuable after the first year, Rekochoku decided to become a member from the second Techstars Music um, uh, year, which that's where we met you guys. Yeah. And then now we're on the third year, um, again, cool. as a member of Techstars Music. Yes. And, and, I, and I know I've seen you around the office. I know that's something that excites you a lot uh, as well. Um, yes. So just kind of to focus on the now, um, what is the what is the focus on the on the on the, on the now um, for for you and, and Reko Choku? Uh, I guess, uh, obviously, the Techstars program and looking at uh, new startups that are not from Japan is definitely one of them. Right. So, um, yes. So for my role, you know, last year, was all about, you know, how, uh, beginning on how to interact with startups, you know, uh, for Record Choku. And this year we're, we're uh, moving on, expanding into about strategically <clears throat> getting more involved with these startups, you know, that, that would be aligned with Record Choku's strategies. What do you think, because we were talking a little bit um, uh, about differences between the Japanese industry and the U.S., what do you think are the, the 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 not the mistakes but the holes in knowledge that we have as as non-Japanese? Uh, we talked a little bit about the 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 lack of knowledge of the English language, so the toughness to do business orally. Uh, obviously, the size of the local Japanese uh, music, which makes yeah. that the, there is a small percentage of success. Um, I know, and we've seen with um, the 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 Endel app kind of taking off in Japan because of a TV ad from AVEX, how big TV ads are actually, and TV marketing is actually uh, almost bigger than radio at, at, or, or, or as big. Um, yes. And there is obviously the, the difference uh, and the local players like Record Choku that us as non-Japanese, we don't know. If you had to pick one, two of these or maybe something else, what are the, the things that we should really think about when we think about Japan? So, especially in considering timing now in 2019, right? And how outside of Japan, how streaming is just, you know, booming. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. In Japan, I would say, I think it was last year, we're still about, you know, of all the recorded music sales, only 10% is coming from um, streaming. And then, you know, streaming just surpassed, I think, downloads, you know, in Japan. But downloads didn't really take off too, as much as, you know, outside of Japan, you know, the Western um, developed countries. So I think, we're at a time where Japan's, as you know, it's still a very physical market, right? And there's going to be this transition and it's going to be kind of probably abrupt, right? And it's only going to happen once, this big shift. So trying to aim at that and finding out on how you could try to take um, or maximize that opportunity, you know, I think that would be the key for people that want to enter Japan. I mean, the chance is there. It is the second largest market in music in terms of sales, you know? So, yeah, that's what I think in terms of timing. And, yeah, despite Japan's difficult, it's a homogenic island, the language, uh, business culture, all these differences. I mean, just with how the shift is going with the music industry and technology, it's this change has to happen. You know, it's inevitable. So it's just about how that's going to happen, you know, in Japan. And nobody knows, but everybody's just trying to, you know, position themselves. So I guess, I guess if you're an international artist, especially from yeah. the U.S., you yes. can get a number one album or, or a Grammy, for example, with Chance. I think it was a digital only album, Chance the Rapper. Um, uh, there was one which is the the booty with the hoodie or uh, boogie with the hoodie. I don't know exactly what his name is, but he got like yeah. number one of the of the tracks or number one album, and he sold 800, um, 800 copies. We'll put this in the description. It's a, it's like a funny story about how the U.S. market is digitally driven. Imagine you have one yes. of those releases in Japan, and you only release a digital single or a digital album. Uh, not only is it tough as a non-Japanese artist, not only is it tough if you're not in market trying to defend your 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 album with the media and, and and so forth but if it's a digital release the maximum you can reach is 10 percent of the global market on streaming and i'm guessing 80 percent of that is local music and then the same kind of 10 percent on downloads which i'm guessing 80 percent of that is also is also uh, local music which means from the second market in the world for a non-japanese artist you're actually potentially reaching um, a very very small share of that of that global market, and that's your that's kind of the, the best chance if you're not a global superstar that can ship physical CDs and have a local major work you almost like a domestic art act. So yes, but what I don't see that much happening is people really trying to research about Japan or aggressively trying to find out, you know. Who, who are like the, you know, influencers in Japan, trendsetters, who are the acts, you know, that sell a lot in Japan, but also are open to collaborations? Because that's that would be the obvious one, you know, back from years ago, right? Same kind of music marketing style, but collaborate with local artists, you know, and stars. That's another way to do it. Yeah, like like uh, I think uh, Amy Winehouse's rehab has Jay-Z, um on it for the US version um, mm. because they wanted to break the track in the US and even for you know she was already on her way to being a global superstar she was signed from the UK and they felt maybe this R&B ish kind of song needed something local and so even the US um, did that a lot and, and still happens today a lot of the bigger streaming uh, songs are collaborations between Ozuna DJ Snake 
some other US artists just to try to get the crowd um, uh, to pay attention. Um, so of course, collaborating with local Japanese talent is a, is, a, is a definite one. Not the easiest one due to also the nature of difference between sounds in pop music and what you consider a good pop song in one market or another. Uh, but sure. definitely something that is under, not underdone, but uh, um, people maybe not don't try enough. Um, but, you know, I think that's, you know, goes both ways, right? Japanese, especially young artists, right? Who knows what's going on or is interested and is ambitious about going global, right? They want that collaboration because, you know, it's inevitable that they see like K-pop blowing up all over the world, right? And it's like, well, why can't we do that, you know? And I'm sure, I'm confident there are artists, you know, and that are seeking that, but they also don't know how or... You know, they need to do their homework, you know, and yeah, those are the things that I'd love to help out. Cool. We're going to put your cell phone number. <laughs> no, I'm, jo <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so cool. I mean, that that has been amazing. I'm sure there's already so much learning in this. I wanted to go maybe more in a, a segue to a concluding part of the interview. Um, sure. It's great to meet people that have a lot of experience. And with experience comes also the potential uh, to sometimes look back. Uh, and of course, uh, to keep looking forward. I asked Bob that question, and I think I will ask anybody that is not 19 that will interview. Uh, yeah. If you met the 19-year-old uh, Goshi, what would you tell him um, to, as an advice, as a word of wisdom? What is kind of the best learning that you've had um, overall? Well, I guess a couple, but you know, one basic one I would love to share to any 19-year-old is that you know. Despite everything what's going on and how you might see things, it, there's only 24 hours, right, for everybody. So time, I think, is equal for everyone. And the, the quicker you realize that, right, you, you become conscious of, you know, how you want to fulfill every day, you know, and live to the fullest. So and it's up to you what you want to do with your 24 hours. But whether you're Warren Buffett or, you know, somebody on the streets, we all have to, only 24 hours a day. Right. So that's one. And then the other one is um, don't let anyone except yourself define yourself. You know, people always say you got to do this. You should be this, you know, and no, it's your life. So, you know, find yourself, believe in yourself and yeah, <clears throat> and define your life while you're still alive. I would I would. Um, yeah, so I definitely agree with both. Um, and I would add to that, you're a perfect example also on, um, and I was thinking about that preparing an interview, how life uh, takes you places that can seem uh, curvy. I don't know how you would say that in, in proper English. Um, yeah. uh, but if you actually work very hard and you keep a good karma, you do good business, you don't try to cross people, network is something that compounds over time. Um, just like most good things in life, they tend to compound over time. Um, and um, and you're you're the proof of that. You you've been linking different markets, different people. I'm sure a majority of your business is word of mouth connections, people introducing you to other people. And as a young person, when you are lacking a network, um, that can be something that seems a very very far and distant mountain. Like oh my God, those people know everybody. Uh, I realize already. I'm, I'm I'm I know we have a. I'm like in the middle between 19 and you, so to speak. And, um, and I already see how that compounds. I mean, we didn't know each other one year ago. 
Um, I, I'm now speaking to you about uh, sound charts. I'm speaking to you about the artists I manage. You're uh, asking me questions. We know each other. And uh, that puts me one handshake away from a lot of people in Japan, just as a positive result of um, knowing people and nurturing those relationships. So I know that's hard for you to, to say that because it's kind of putting yourself forward. Uh, but that's something that I think you are the the best example of that. Um, your entire life is about connecting people in their creative and digital industries. Um, cool. So to, to wrap up, um, a couple of questions that I want to ask everybody as well. What is the most exciting thing for you um, uh, looking ahead or right now? Um, in music or? Yeah, 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 in music and in tech, sorry. Yeah, in music and tech. Yeah. Um, I, I would say, you know, there, there's this shift going on, you know, it's been going on from the 20th, what I call the 20th century music business to the 21st century music business. And it's all basically about transparency, right? And how, you know, things are going to accelerate faster and it will still take some time, but you know, um, I think that's real exciting. And it will be like, once that whole transformation happens, uh, we won't see that kind of, you know, transformation for quite some time. So that's exciting that I get to live through that time, you know, of this shift. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and especially because you're literally working between the US and, and Japan, J Japan has been like, you know, the first Walkman is Sony and like a lot of innovation came from there. And right now, Japanese, Japanese market is actually a little bit late on some of the digital innovation. So you're still yep. seeing that transition from both worlds where uh, if you're a young 19 year old in, um, in the US to, to kind of use the previous example, the past three, four years, you kind of assume that the market is digital. You forget that in a lot of European markets, it's still a lot of physical CDs, that in Japan, it's a big majority, uh, that some royalty, royalty statements still take years to arrive and nobody kind of knows really where the money is sometimes. Um, yeah. You know, there is unclaimed royalties around and, and yeah, that transparency and real time flow of information is still not um, a finished revolution. Um, um, cool. Um, so uh, last two questions. Um, yeah. I forgot to ask Bob. So w what is the book or the podcast that you would recommend right now to people? And we, we will link that in the description. Okay, sure. Um, I'd like to recommend a book. It's called The Life Energy in Music. And in memory of my friend David Mancuso from The Loft, who turned me on to this book, um, it's a book about um, how you could enjoy, appreciate, you know, music, real fundamental stuff. But I think it still holds up um, after decades of, you know, after it's been published. And in my opinion, it's actually got the key information and hints about where music could go from now, you know, especially now and to all the 19 year olds and people in the industry. So yeah, I highly recommend that book. The life energy in music. Yes. Cool. We'll link to that. And so last question, what are you going to do after the interview? You are in LA and it's 1130, I guess. Yes. And I am actually going on a business trip to Tokyo tomorrow. Okay. So, I am going to rush to Techstars Music Office right now and make my last rounds to talk to all the startups and Bob and Jen and everybody and just get the latest info before I go. Cool. It was great to have you, Goshi. Uh, we'll be in touch Thanks soon. For having me. Yeah. yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. All right. Bye.